guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing really great as well. Do we ever mean it? I feel like most of the time we're <laughs> we're maybe fives or sixes, but we sound like we're at tens, yeah. which I think is what <laughs> yeah, everyone I wants. I, I know. You know, it's funny because right when I said it this time, it I was reminded of a comment that I saw. Uh, it wasn't really necessarily a nice comment that I saw about our intro. And somebody said it sounds like Groundhog Day every time we say <laughs> the same intro. But it was, I mean, it wasn't a nice comment, but it still made me laugh. And I was like, you know what? That person is right. It does sound like Groundhog Day every single week. The way we do the intro, that's just how we do it. I can't change it now. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. <laughs> you know what happens on Patreon episodes. Anytime we try to change it up, it is just a disaster every single time. It's like three minutes of us laughing because we can't figure out how to start it if you don't start it yeah, it's the like, same way. Yeah, it's like my tongue has muscle memory of saying that exact phrase, <laughs> and I can't just decide to say something different at this point. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is you and I have both talked about being anxious every time we're getting ready to record almost three years into this. And so just having that like same intro every time is very comforting to me. That's so sad. But if 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 you don't like it, I am sorry. But I promise you it starts us off on a better foot just knowing yes. the first five <laughs> words we're saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a fun little glimpse into our minds and how they work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> so we have a really fun little episode for you guys this week, and we're both really excited about it because it really brings on a very, very strong sense of nostalgia for us, and it probably will for many of our listeners as well. So people have different memories from all different points in their life, but a lot of people seem to have the same fond memories of the 90s. And some of the popular things that people remember from the 90s are toys like Tamagotchis and Pogs and Polly Pockets that actually fit inside your pocket, the puppy and kitty surprise, you know, those little stuffed animals that had babies yeah. that could pull out of their bellies, Skippets, Beanie Babies, and Game Boys. Others look back fondly on the classic 90s movies and TV shows like You've Got Mail and Clueless and Daria and Rugrats and TGIF. So, Melissa, what are some things from the 90s that just make you feel really nostalgic and things that you look back on fondly? There are things, the things I look back on fondly are things that I didn't own, but other people did and like <laughs> I coveted. Truly, like things like the jelly, uh, the jelly shoes. I never had them, but I really wanted them. I don't know why. It looks like everyone I knew had blisters when wearing them, but I thought they were so cool. Yeah. I just don't think I really was into jelly shoes because I think even as a child, I always thought that they looked uncomfortable or maybe I had some at one point and they were uncomfortable. And so then you I probably just had them. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't, you would want them. I promise. It's yeah. like a thing that's in your head. <laughs> well, if I had There's them, no reason. Yeah, if I had them, then I have these like terrible memories of them. So you didn't, exactly. you didn't miss out on anything at all. You've blocked them out of your mind. <laughs> So, yeah. So I was born in kind of like the mid to late 80s. So I was really young in the 90s. And I do remember a lot from the 90s. Some of the things I remember, I was a big Barney lover. And I know a lot of people 
probably were that were my age. But let me tell you, Barney, when you go back to it a second time, like when you have a child, is really not that fun. Um, my oldest son it's went terrifying. through a Barney case. And I remember his third birthday, I actually made him a Barney cake where I drew an entire Barney on the cake. And it turned out really, really awful and kind of scary. But that's what I did. So anyway, I liked Barney as a kid. And then I passed that on to my child. I made him enjoy something from the 90s. <laughs> yeah. So of course, there's a lot of things to remember about the 90s. There was the butterfly hair clips that actually moved when you walked. They Their little wings flapped. Did you ever have what? those? Yeah. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that was a thing. It was a little butterfly hairpin. And then the the wings were actually movable or they bounced when you walked, I guess. And so that was it was a whole thing, Melissa. I'm sorry that you missed out on that. I feel like, yeah, there was something. It was a turn of the decade and I started missing things, but not because I was cool. It was because I really wasn't cool and apparently didn't have cool enough friends that had butterfly hair clips. Those sound amazing. Yeah, they were really awesome. So I was busy watching Barney and Nickelodeon shows, which was really awesome. But Melissa, as we well, have said, I don't like how you introduced <laughs> that at all. As we have said a few times on the show before, you're just a couple of years older than me. So did you watch daytime trash TV? I'm talking like Jenny Jones, Ricky Lake, yes. Montel Williams. Did you watch those things or were you just too wholesome back then to actually watch trash TV? Oh, no. I've watched trash TV since I think it was invented. I remember... Uh, at our house when I was most in a middle school, my sister and I would have to move our like hose or the uh, water thing. What is it? A sprinkler. My parents didn't have a sprinkler system or anything. I don't know anyone that did. And uh, you'd have to like move it every 15 minutes because they had a lot of property. And so on like commercials for Jenny Jones, you'd run outside as quickly as possible, move it over a few feet, go back in and watch Jenny Jones, <laughs> Jerry Springer, all of it. It was like my sister and I knew our whole day lineup of shows and we would just, you know, have to run out and move the water hose every <laughs> few minutes. Just Jenny Jones like crazy. That had a murder that came out of it actually. Uh, Ricky Lake was great Montel Williams who else there was some like one-offs like the lady from uh, 90210 the old old girl remember how there's like an older girl that's on there I never really watched the show but she was like 20 years older than the rest of them she had a show briefly I gave it a try it wasn't great no one else liked it it was canceled (laughs) but don't worry my summer was spent trying to support her So there is a lot to love and miss about the 90s, but perhaps the biggest thing to come from that decade was the music and the music television that took off really during that time. Although alternative music had been around for a few years, it was mostly underground until the 90s. And it was in the mid to late 90s that shows like VH1's pop-up video. First of all, is VH1 still even a thing? It is, but I think it only plays Basketball Wives and maybe old behind the musics, but I don't think it plays videos anymore, but I loved pop-up video. I did too. I couldn't even tell you how old I was when I would just sit around and just watch pop-up video. And now I can't imagine just sitting and watching a TV that had music playing on it and the little bubbles and reading along. It just doesn't seem like a thing that you would do in 2020. Yeah. I once recorded, I love the Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On so much. I had a tape and it was specifically for recording My Heart Will Go On every time it came on VH1. (laughs) So I would watch the top 20 countdown and every time, because sometimes they would give like a little note about what happened. They're like, and then Celine Dion was asked to sing this song by whoever. I'm like, wow, new fact, didn't know that recorded. Probably if there's a tape at my parents' house with it 55 (laughs) times, it looks crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So 
pop-up video came out in the 90s and also most people would recognize MTV's TRL, which yes. just became common household noise. I think it came on at like three or four in the afternoon. I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly, uh, but I would wait for it every single day and watch the top 10 videos that would go on to Total Request Live. So one of the biggest musical achievements to come out of the 90s was, of course, boy bands. Whether you loved them or hated them, if you were alive at all in the 90s, then you definitely knew about the existence of these all-male pop groups. This wasn't really a new concept to the 90s. Uh, in fact, the Jackson 5 really widely popularized the concept in the 60s, and there were several pop groups between then and the 90s. But the boy bands that most of us think of are, you know, the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, New Kids on the Block, 98 Degrees, and then, of course, there are some lesser-known ones like Dream Street and O-Town and B2K, and that era of boy bands was really brought on in the most unexpected way and by the most unexpected man. So today we're going to be talking about the infamous fraudster that created the ultimate Ponzi scheme and defrauded millions from banks, investors, and hugely popular clients, the Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC, and his name is Louis J. Perlman. And his story really sounds too wild to be true, but yet somehow it is true. I really like our intro. This has been really fun. I've enjoyed this walk down memory lane, so I hope everyone else has enjoyed it too. This yeah. is great. <laughs> so Lou Perlman hasn't always been in the record producing industry or even in the music industry at all prior to the 90s. He was born on June 19, 1954, to parents High and Reeney, and he was raised as an only child with a pretty average life. His father was a dry cleaner, while his mother worked as a school lunchroom aide. The family didn't have a ton of money, and they lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Queens, New York, where Lou slept in the bedroom and his parents slept on a fold-out couch in the living room. Lou's mom was what some might call a pushover and a peacemaker. She was constantly putting Lou on a pedestal and excusing any wrongdoings by her one and only son. A number of factors contributed to Lou's lonely childhood. He had no siblings to play with, and he didn't really fit in with the other kids his age either. He was overweight and nerdy and wore glasses, which made him the target of bullying, and he only had one real friend named Alan Gross, who will actually come up a lot in the story of Lou's life. Alan and Lou both worked on the school newspaper, and they also had another thing in common— a love for blimps. I feel like that's kind of a one in a million thing that you find a friend and they also like blimps or that you like. Well, blimps. yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like everyone likes them when they see them, but how many people do you meet that are actually like very, very invested in blimps? Right. <laughs> it's a very specific pastime, I guess. So Lou first became interested in the giant flying balloons when he realized that he could see them perfectly from his apartment window as they took off and landed at Flushing Airport nearby. He became obsessed with watching and learning about them, so it was great that his only friend shared his interest. When the two boys were teens, they used their media credentials, big air quotes there, from working the school newspaper to get a free ride on a real blimp. And that eventually turned into a regular position, helping the blimp crew in the summers while the boys were still in high school and in college. At this point in time, the blimp industry only advertised for Goodyear, and after studying the way the industry worked, Lou believed that he could successfully expand advertising opportunities on blimps, which we will get into a lot more in just a little bit. As a kid, Lou was very ambitious, and he got his first taste of the salesman life when he was just eight years old and he opened a lemonade stand. By age 10, he was selling newspapers and spending more and more time making these in-depth business plans, which at age 10 is pretty impressive. I have a 10-year-old yeah. son and 
he does not do anything remotely close to making business plans at this age. So, <laughs> so I'm wondering what is wrong with my child at this point. <laughs> no. <laughs> I feel really. like this is very out of the ordinary to have business plans at 10. Definitely. Completely. Yeah, definitely. So as we said before, Lou was lonely as an only child. And sometimes he was so desperate to fit in and to make friends that he would make up these extravagant lies to make himself seem more interesting. It got to a point where people really didn't know when to believe him or when he was just making up a story. There was one cool thing in Lou's life that was not a lie, and that was that his first cousin is none other than Art Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel and Melissa. I know that you like Simon and, I mean, yeah, I know you. (laughs) Don't you like them? I like the 70s music and stuff. I'm not a big Simon and Garfunkel fan. The only song I like that, I probably like some, but... Uh, Paul Simon had the song uh, You Can Call Me Al with Chevy Chase in the video and that was like a pop-up video and so (laughs) full circle but I loved that song but I Art and Garfunkel they're not like hard enough for me I was a hardcore rocker by that I mean I still listen to (laughs) 70s music like Ambrosia (laughs) yeah (laughs) so when Lou was approaching the age of 13 and he started planning his bar mitzvah he started going around telling everyone that Garfunkel would be there at his bar mitzvah but nobody believed him until they saw it for themselves. Garfunkel did show up, and after that, things really began to change for Lou and the way that his peers treated him. By the time he was 18, Lou had gained popularity and really learned how to use his charm to his advantage. His physical appearance hadn't changed that much, and he was still considered nerdy by those who knew him, but somehow he had managed to charm his way into the good graces of the popular kids in school, and he always had an entire entourage around him, according to Alan. After high school, Lou was accepted into the business program at Queens College. While attending classes there, he came up with this idea for a helicopter taxi business, and his plan was to have investors buy a helicopter, and then he would lease it and use it to taxi people around New York. Sounds like a really awesome idea. Yeah. So this business ended up turning into a whole venture. In 1978, Lou and his childhood friend, Alan, created Airship Enterprises, which was a business that offered advertising on blimps. They saved money where they could, and they used Alan's apartment as their home base, where they would print brochures, make video presentations, and they would also house crew members there. According to Alan, he invested more than $30,000 into this company. He said that Lou bought a logging blimp for $10,000 and then he would tie a rope to the logs and use this blimp to carry the logs out of the forest. The blimp he purchased was not modern or fancy. It was about 17 years old and according to a Vanity Fair article, Lou just bought a balloon envelope and then hired someone to build a frame for it. This wasn't exactly the kind of nice blimp that any company would really want their name on. A short time later, Lou bought a better, nicer blimp from a German airline. He paid $500,000 for it and had this blimp insured for $3 million. Something to keep in mind during this story is that Lou Pearlman was an incredibly good salesman. He could talk and charm his way into nearly anything as it related to business and making himself money. One of his first big clients to advertise on his new blimp was Jordash, like Jordash Jeans, which I thought was the one that Brooke Shields did, but that was Calvin Klein, so (laughs) never mind. (laughs) The blimp was painted gold and had the Jordache logo on it, and Lou called it a designer blimp. It was 1980 when the Jordache blimp set off on its first flight, but within minutes of takeoff, the blimp crashed into some trees and totaled it. Yikes. 
Lou alleged that the blimp malfunctioned because the gold paint absorbed heat, and so the helium inside the blimp expanded. That's a sentence I just said, and does that make any sense to you? That's, it doesn't. No, it yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That seems like there's got to be another answer for that. But thankfully, no one was injured in this crash, but Lou did collect $3 million in damages from the insurance company. It was at this time that Lou's lifelong friend and business partner turned on him. Alan believed that Lou's whole plan all along was to crash this blimp or cause the blimp to crash so that he could defraud the insurance company. Alan was, of course, upset, disappointed, and felt betrayed by this, and when he confronted Lou, it didn't really go well. Lou pretty much told Alan to mind his own business and then cut Alan off and out of his life. Alan officially left the company, and since the Jordash crash had ruined Lou's name, he had to dissolve Airship Enterprises after three years of business. Despite investing over $30,000, Alan said he only got $11,000 from this business venture with Lou. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Can you imagine? No. That, that has to be a crazy feeling to be like, we're doing all this work. We're getting, oh my gosh, we have Jordash. This is amazing. I can't believe it. This is really going to work. And then it sinks and he's, or he falls out of the sky and he's like, oh, gold paint. What are you going to do? $3 million, please. And you're like, what? <laughs> How yeah. did this happen? That'd be the worst. And that's such a huge betrayal. That would be terrible. So after Lou's first company crashed and burned, so to speak, he started up a new business, which he called Airship International, and sold penny stock in the company, which earned him $3 million by 1985. Lou used that money to buy a 13-year-old blimp and then somehow managed to convince a McDonald's executive to hire their first ever blimp ad. This is what I personally consider to be the real turning point in Lou's life and his career choices, because, of course, landing McDonald's as a sponsor is Really no small feat, and it actually is yeah. a pretty big deal. So having McDonald's advertise on the blimp really made Airship International become a well-known company, and it increased the value of the stock that was in the company. But Airship International wasn't Lou's only business, nor was it his most profitable. Also in the late 80s, Lou started Transcontinental Airlines, which was a private plane chartering service, and it would also become Lou's biggest con in his long history of deception and swindling. It was through Transcontinental Airlines that Lou eventually got the idea to switch careers from the aircraft field to the field of music and record producing, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves and we will get right back to that. So just to give you an idea of how big of a scam Transcontinental Airlines was, Lou actually used a 747 model airplane that actually belonged to his friend Alan, and he put his brand with a Transcontinental logo on this toy plane, and then he took it to LaGuardia Airport and held it in strategic positions while he took photos of it for his advertising brochures. So he's kind of doing this perspective photographing Whoa. where, yeah, so you can't tell that this is actually just a toy. And, it, it, you know, when you're holding it against the sky, it could be a real plane in the sky. And people saw these photos and they believed that Transcontinental Airlines owned a 747 airplane. And therefore, it looked like it was a legitimate plane service. In reality, the plane that was photographed was nothing more than a toy, as I said, and I'm going to try and remember to post the pictures of this in our Facebook group because I've seen the pictures that were in the brochure of this, and it's just so funny when you know that it's a toy yeah. airplane and you can see them, but you can also see how people would easily be duped into believing that this was real. So the scam worked out just fine for Lou for a while, and at one point he claimed that the company owned 49 aircrafts and had a revenue of $78 million, 
But in reality, the company didn't even own not one single plane. Lou just leased these planes that he used. And at this point, you might be wondering what any of this has to do with boy bands. And we're going to bring it all full circle and explain how it all is connected after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. At the end of a long, long, long day, is there anything better than hopping into your bed, getting under your sheets and comforter, and drifting off to sleep? Good sleep is something I crave, and the first step to getting the best night's sleep is having amazing sheets on my bed. Sheets and Giggles is not only my favorite name for a company, maybe ever, but they have what I think are the most comfortable and breathable sheets on the planet. Sheets and Giggles packaging is 100% plastic-free, plus they don't use any pesticides or insecticides, which is great for our friends, the bees. And for every order they receive, they will plant a baby tree in the U.S. as a way to help fight deforestation. Plus, they have an eternal return policy. You can try it for 100 days, decide you hate it, and you can return it. You can try it for 100 million days, and you can still return it. There's truly no better return policy out there. Sheets and Giggles 100% eucalyptus sheets are more breathable, softer, and are more sustainable than both cotton and bamboo. Speaking of cotton, if you compare it to cotton, the production of eucalyptus fabric uses up to 96% less water and 30% less energy. Sheets and Giggles sent us new sheets and one of their new comforters. The sheets are so comfortable, but also breathable. You get that just out of the laundry feeling every time you jump into your bed. Sheets and Giggles now carries a comforter that is made from eucalyptus plus recycled polyester and recycled water bottles. The comforter is thermally bonded to help hold up against your everyday life and has the same benefits of their sheets. It's the perfect comforter no matter the season. It's cool in the summer and cuddly and cozy in the winter. Go to SheetsGiggles.com and use the promo code MOMS for 10% off the best night of your life. Again, go to SheetsGiggles.com and use the promo code MOMS for 10% off the best night of your life. I started using BetterHelp a few months ago, and I can't tell you what a difference it's made for me. I've been in therapy a few times over the course of my life, but it's never been very easy to stick with, and that's mainly because I have to leave the house and get a babysitter just to go. But now, thanks to BetterHelp, it's as easy as making a phone call. If you're like me and there's something that's interfering with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals, check out BetterHelp. BetterHelp doesn't just assign you to a random therapist on the BetterHelp network but they assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so you can start communicating in under 24 hours. If you find for some reason that your therapist isn't a great match, you can change therapists at any time. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide, and with BetterHelp, you can message your counselor at any time and schedule weekly video or phone chats all from the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp counselors are specialized in things like anxiety, stress, trauma, sleep, and grief, and everything you share with your counselor is confidential. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. So before we take a break, we're talking about the shady business practices of Lou Pearlman and how they led up to and tie into popular 90s boy bands, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. We started explaining how Lou was running this bogus plane chartering company and using a toy plane in his advertising photos. 
Well, his brochure and sales pitch was obviously convincing enough because in the early 90s, a transcontinental plane was chartered by new kids on the block. Lou had no idea who they were, but when this group of young men chartered a private plane from him, it made him curious about how they could afford it. Lou learned that they were a famous pop group that had done $200 million in record sales and $800 million in touring and merchandise. And it was at that moment that Lou decided he was in the wrong business and that he could get filthy rich if he could duplicate what new kids on the block did to become successful, which have you ever seen something and you're like, oh, you know what? I'm not doing do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do that now and become rich. That's all I had to do is this. I don't have that kind of confidence whatsoever. So Lou obviously did not have the talent nor really the look for stardom on his own. So he decided he would simply produce a new boy band himself. In 1988, Lou packed up his business and moved to Orlando, Florida. Remember, at this time, he still had this successful blimp company that took off after McDonald's bought an ad on his blimp, and he bought a large blimp hangar in Orlando and added four more blimps to Airship International. He landed ad contracts with SeaWorld, MetLife, and more. In the meantime, he was also pursuing his new dream of creating a successful male recording group. Unlike most entertainment moguls, Lou wasn't out there discovering musical acts. He was actually the one that was putting them together. He had people audition, and then he would pick and choose a group based on the auditions. Unfortunately, by 1992, Airship International had taken a turn for the worst. The company claimed that it had lost $2 million, and by 1994, they had lost $4 million. At that point, only one of the five blimps was still in working order. Two of them had crashed, one was damaged in a windstorm, and one was dismantled after SeaWorld didn't renew their lease. The lease on the remaining blimp was only good through 1995, and Lou was already struggling to pay his employees. The company was really just about to go under when Lou finally put together what he felt was his perfect combination of young men for a hit boy band. This group would eventually be known as the Backstreet Boys. One of the reasons that Lou had decided to move to Orlando is because he believed there would be a lot of young talent there. There are numerous talented people who excel at theater and singing that flock to the theme parks for work, and Lou thought that this would be a good pool of people to draw from when making a pop group. Lou brought every bit of charm that he had to the table when he spoke with investors and potential band members, and he would send private jets to pick them up and then have them greeted by a limo when they first arrived in Orlando. Lou tried to impress his prospects any way that he could, and he would even do stupid things like pretend to be on the phone with someone important when a potential investor or band member walked into his office. So he would say into the phone that nobody else was on the other end of, he would say things like, we'll close that deal, don't worry about it, or really any other statement that would make himself sound like he was an important person that was on an important phone call. He also handed out fake business cards for Transcontinental, which listed 40 plus companies that he allegedly owned And he would really just tout his success in front of these important people so they would be confident in using his company. When it came to auditioning teenage boy band hopefuls, Lou was really great at outsmarting their parents. Oftentimes, the parents were just as naive and starstruck as their sons, and Lou won them over by letting them all drive his Rolls Royce, and they would have friends over for parties at his mansion, and many, many more things that he would do to earn their trust. A.J. McLean was the first member of the group that Lou chose. He had lived in Central Florida for quite some time and had been trying to break into the entertainment industry since he was just a young child. A.J. was just 14 years old when he saw an ad in the paper seeking young men between the ages of 16 to 19 for a new music group, but he decided to try out anyway. 
So in 2020, finding an, a news or something in the newspaper that says we're looking for boys between 14 and or 16 and 19 for a music right. group. Yeah. I feel like you would just be like, actually, we're not going to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like no one would now because yeah. that's, that, that's not a thing in 2020. You would be like, mm, no, it's a little, it's, it's <laughs> a little shady. Preemptively yeah. call the police. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So by April of 1992, AJ was the first member of Lou's new group. Having grown up in the industry, AJ already had made friends with a few people, and he already knew Howie Doro and Nick Carter through vocal coaches and other auditions that they had all three been in together. The three of them had already realized that they could harmonize together and sounded really great, and so they started singing a cappella just as a three-man group. After AJ was chosen by Lou, he continued to hold open casting calls in his blimp hangar in Kissimmee, which is where Disney is located. And I feel like I have to say that because a lot of people think it's right here in Orlando, but it's actually right. in Kissimmee. And that's where AJ was found and probably where he lived because he was working over there. So that's where the airplane hangar was also close to Disney. So in the end, Lou agreed that Howie and Nick met his expectations and they were also signed to the new group as well. Nick was just 12 years old when he auditioned and he was 13 when he was signed to the group and Howie was 19. So it just blows my mind to right? think that Nick Carter was only 12 years old when he auditioned for the Backstreet Boys. I don't know why that, I mean, I guess well, I was we have around kids close to that age. Yeah. But I guess I was also around that age when Backstreet Boys came out. And it just seems weird to me that like a child that was my age was doing this, was making yeah. a, was, was being a pop star. And I guess I didn't realize until just now with this episode that he was that young, 12 years old. I didn't know that either. That's very baby. Young. Yeah. To join a pop group. I mean, that would be like you said, like, you know, our oldest are close to that age. That would be like one of us sending our kids to go audition mm. for a for a recording group, which is just crazy to even think about at that right. at, their, at their ages. You know, a lesser known fact about the original Backstreet Boys is that there were actually two other young men that were originally chosen to be a part of that group. Their names were Sam Licata and Charles Edwards. These two members of the group didn't last more than five months. Sam left for personal reasons, and Charles left the group due to difficulties with his voice. I wonder what they think now. Like, I know. We have, could we have stuck it out <laughs> a little bit longer? So a short time later, Kevin Richardson auditioned for the group. Kevin was 21 at the time and had recently left his family in Kentucky to pursue a career in acting and singing. He was working as a model, a tour guide, and cast member at Disney. He actually played Aladdin, Prince Eric, a Ninja Turtle, Tigger, and he played Sebastian the Crab in The Little Mermaid Show for a while and he was also a dance instructor. There's conflicting information about how Kevin made his way into Backstreet. Some sources say that he already knew Howie from working at Disney, and other sources say he saw an ad in the paper and auditioned. Yet another source says that Lou's limo driver knew someone that knew Kevin. Either way, he became the fourth member of the group. Once Kevin was in, he suggested that his cousin, Brian Luttrell, should audition for the final spot in the boy band, which is kind of interesting to me, because wasn't Brian, like, one of the main ones well i think he, yeah he he ended up being but it is crazy that it was just like his cousin yeah you know, called called him up and said hey i'm doing this thing like you should just try it out and you know it, it is it is a little interesting that this, they were first cousins were yeah. part of this this teaches us we should all be a little nicer to our cousins yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know when you can join a boy band so Brian actually auditioned for Lou over the phone and was put on a flight to Orlando the very next day. When all five of the guys sang together for the first time, Lou knew that this was his group. 
Lou incorporated the band as Florida Backstreet Boys, and he set it up so that he was the president and business manager. Other business managers included Sybil Hall and Jeannie Williams. Lou set it up that he would get the largest percentage of shares, 300 of 1,000, and everyone else would get 100. When Sam Licata and Charles Edwards left the group, so did managers Sybil Hall and Jeannie Williams, and Lou told the Backstreet Boys that he would handle everything when it came to buying back their shares of Florida Backstreet Boys. I'm really glad they dropped the Florida part. Even being from Florida, it's a mouthful. Yeah, it's just too much, yeah. (laughs) It is. The members of Backstreet Boys had signed an agreement that they would work exclusively for Florida Backstreet Boys for five years with six one-year extensions, but little did the young men know, Lou was actually planning to dissolve Florida Backstreet Boys to take away the rights of the shareholders that had left the company, which was Sam, Charles, Sybil, and Gene. He decided to do this so he wouldn't have to buy back their shares in the company. And he did all of this without telling anyone that he was going to. The ultimate plan was to create new companies that Lou would have total control of. This would end up being a complicated web of related companies and contracts that Lou used to siphon off the vast majority of the Backstreet Boys' earnings, completely unbeknownst to the boys themselves. Once the group was set in stone, it was time to start practicing for stardom. Lou made the band members attend what he called boy band boot camp, where they learned to dance, they learned how to sing into a microphone without losing their breath, and much more. They would train in his gondola hangers for six to eight hours a day in the heat. And keep in mind, this is Florida, and I literally cannot imagine singing and dancing in an airplane hangar for six to eight hours a day outside in the Florida heat. So this obviously left them exhausted, but it also made them become really close to each other and even inseparable. It was really an added bonus that they were all doing exactly what they loved and wanted to do, which was making music. But Lou was not putting all of his eggs into one basket. While he was working to get Backstreet Boys off the ground, he was also working to put together other pop groups. And he continued to make these deceptive videos about his life and his success to draw in these potential investors and other band members. He made a video of his life that included a tour of his mansion here in Orlando that featured boats and jet skis and members of his boy bands actually thought of Lou's house as somewhat of a theme park in its own right. Lou made connections with many names in the music industry. He once took a prospective client to lunch with Britney Spears and introduced the same client to Sylvester Stallone and Hulk Hogan, as well as taking him on a ride in a blimp just to impress him. Over time, Lou started numerous bands that you have probably heard of besides just the Backstreet Boys. Lou is also responsible for NSYNC, O-Town, Take 5, LFO, and an all-girl group called Innocence that Britney Spears was actually a part of very briefly, but she left and went solo before she ever made any music with them. And I looked them up. I had never heard of Innocence. I don't know if you had before Mm -hmm. this episode. Yeah. So Britney really dodged a bullet there. I listened to a few of their songs and watched a couple videos. It's terrible. Even for a 90s girl band, it was just awful. So I'm so glad that Britney got out of it and, and went on to go do her own Britney thing. Recently burning down her own gym. Have you seen the video for that? It's my favorite no. thing. She no. stands there. She's like talking about working out. Oh my gosh, you have to watch this. And she's like, um, yeah, so I haven't been able to work out for a while because um, I I burned down my gym. Uh, I, you know, I had a candle. One thing <laughs> led to another and the gym burned down. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> And that's it. There's no other explanation. She literally says there was a candle. One thing led to another and her gym burned down. Kept going with the exercise. (laughs) Oh, no. 
So we're going to get more on to Lou's other pop groups in just a little bit. But when he created contracts for these new bands, he would list himself as the sixth member of the group, which he told them that it meant that they wouldn't have to pay for a manager because he wasn't listed as a manager in the company. He was actually listed as a sixth member of their group. So weird. Yeah. So Justin Timberlake's mom later said that she thought Lou really just wanted to actually be a sixth member of the group and that he really wanted that admiration. But of course, as we said before, Lou was not a young, talented boy band musical, you know, artist like he was not able to do that. In June of 1993, Lou had his agent, Robert Fischetti, form Delaware Backstreet Boys. He had the band members sign an agreement giving Lou 100% of Delaware Backstreet Boys. A few months later, Lou had the boys sign an exclusive management agreement where Lou would now be the principal stockholder who would manage all of their affairs and, quote unquote, protect their interest. This move meant that Lou and Lou alone now owned and controlled the entire Backstreet Boys management company, merchandise company, touring company, and more. In 1993, the Backstreet Boys made their big debut at SeaWorld, but they didn't become popular in the U.S. right away. They did really well in Europe and Asia for a few years, and in 1997, they released their song, Quit Playing Games With My Heart, and they became successful in the States. That song sold 2 million copies and became the most successful single on Billboard's Hot 100 that year. How hard was it for you to even like say the name of that song and not sing it? I know. And I was like, <laughs> and with it being in parentheses there, I like, I can hear it. You know, <laughs> I literally yeah. paused because I was singing it in my head. Oh my gosh, it's really a problem for me. So in the same year, they released their debut album and sold 14 million copies. As you can imagine, the boys were ecstatic and truly felt like they were living the dream at this point. Pretty much every teenage girl in America was obsessed with them, and they were just over the moon excited that they had made it. But after putting in years of work and having numerous hit songs, the boys still weren't making any money. It seemed to them as though Lou was raking in the cash, the promoters were being paid, but the members of the band themselves weren't getting paid at all. In 1995, Lou decided that he was ready to put together another successful boy band. And you might think this is odd considering he already had a very successful one. So he used the same formula that he followed to create Backstreet Boys and began auditioning new young local talent. The first member of his new group was Chris Kirkpatrick. So it goes without saying that Lou's second boy band is who we all came to know and love as NSYNC. Once Chris was signed on, he brought in his friends, Justin Timberlake and Joey Fatone. And from there, Justin introduced his friend, JC Chazes. And to finalize the new band, Lou actually held more auditions. And then when he heard Lance Bass sing, he wanted to get him together with these other four and see how they sounded together. So the five of them sang the Star Spangled Banner for Lou, and he said it sounded just right. Once NSYNC was formed, Lou bought them a house to live in together. Unfortunately for Lou, NSYNC did not see the same success that Backstreet Boys had seen really early on. It wasn't until three years later in 1998 that NSYNC finally got the recognition they deserved, and it was because that year the Disney Channel wanted the Backstreet Boys to come on and do a concert special, but at that time, Backstreet Boys were completely exhausted from being on the go for years already, and they've already been touring and they've been doing all these things, and so they said, you know what? We're not going to do the Disney special, and they turned it down. When NSYNC heard that they had turned it down, they stepped right up and agreed to do the concert in Backstreet Boys' place. 
Well, this ended up being a game changer for NSYNC. The concert ended up running on the Disney Channel every day for a month, which gave these guys enough exposure that it quickly shot them way up on the charts, making them just as successful as Backstreet. And I love how I just referred to NSYNC as these guys, like I'm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm somehow better than them. I didn't mean to do that. I just realized after no, I said no, it. No, no, no. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm like these guys, they, you know, yes, I love NSYNC and I'm so happy that they did that and they got famous and and now we have instinct to love. I was thinking the whole time, imagine if you were the Backstreet Boys and you're like, oh gosh, okay, we're not doing Disney. Guys, I'm too tired. We're not doing Disney. Right. And everybody else is like, <laughs> okay, I guess not. And then all of a sudden you're like, our lives are ruined. Yeah. <laughs> Instinct is a thing now and no one cares about us. Not that that happened, but you know, you have to kind of think like, oh, well, we really screwed that one up. So Lou's relationship with his group members was really pretty interesting. In some cases, he acted as a father figure to some of the boys and he would refer to them all as his family. He would take them out to lavish dinners at very expensive restaurants, and they became very close, and the young men would really tell Lou everything. There are no reports of sexual abuse, but there are many rumors that Lou sexually harassed the boy band members by saying things like, quote, let's see your abs, take off your shirts. He was allegedly very touchy-feely with them and would offer them massages. Boy band members later said that Lou would frequently take secret videos of the girl band, which was Innocence that Mandy was talking about earlier, those members while they were using the tanning bed at his house, and then show those videos to the boy band members. Yikes. But while Lou was working to build rapport and relationships with the members of his groups, he was also actively working to pit them against each other. He would complain to Backstreet Boys about NSYNC and vice versa, telling each group that they were better than the other and eventually causing the two bands to dislike each other and become rivals. Although I can see where this could work for him because they're going to work harder to be better than the other one. Right. Some coaches will do that to you and say the other team is really better than you and then you're ticked off. And sometimes you play better and sometimes you get pulled really quickly because you're just crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this also forced boy band fans to pick a side and it became really a whole thing about who was better, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. Everyone had their favorite, Mandy. Where does your allegiance lie? I think overall, I really like them both, but I am definitely an NSYNC person. Yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love Backstreet Boys and I will listen to them and I have pretty much all week this week because we've, we're doing this episode. So I've done nothing but listen to 90s boy band music. <laughs> but um, yeah, NSYNC is where it's at for me. It really always was. And I'm sorry, but I always liked Justin way more than Nick. And I think that's probably what it came down to for me as a teenage girl was that I thought Justin was cuter, even with his spaghetti hair that he had. His ramen noodle hair. I love it yeah. so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such simpler times. What about you, Melissa? Who did you like better? <laughs> oh, I liked NSYNC better. I don't think I was in a weird age. Like, so 1998, I was about to graduate from high school like two years later. So even when they first started, I was almost in college. So I didn't, I hit at this weird place where um, I was too young for really to get into New Kids on the Block and then kind of like towards the end of where you should or where some people really liked boy bands. So I kind of like hit in a weird age. I liked NSYNC better. They're the superior band. And I will fight anyone over that. Not really. I really don't care that much. But I think they're more talented. Okay, I do yeah. care. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely care. <laughs> After NSYNC rose to the top of the charts and toured for two years, they sold over 10 million records. And the boys were really all just waiting for this big paycheck at the end of the tunnel. But when the tour was over, the guys were each only getting paid 
$35 per day diem, which is what they had agreed on. And some of them thought that this was actually really a good deal because everything else in their lives was free. So Lou was paying for all their food. He was housing them, but he was giving them $35 a day as payment. So either way, the band members believe that at the end of their tour, they would finally be getting a big payout. At this point, they had put in 18 hours of work per day and their hard work had really paid off and had turned them into a highly successful recording group. At the end of the tour, Lou took all the boys out for a fancy dinner and invited their parents to come along. And they all believed that they were finally going to be paid. And they really were all expecting something that was at least six figures considering all this work that they had put in. And as I said before, it had been two years at this point. Instead... The boys and their families were given a wonderful dinner and a check for $10,000. Whoa. Yeah. So that's like such a slap in the face when you have worked literally tirelessly and you're on the road for over two years. And this $10,000 doesn't even amount to minimum wage. And yet there are some of the most famous people in the world at this point. So that obviously does not add up. So it was at this point that Lance Bass realized Lou was doing something wrong. At the very least, he's a terrible businessman, if that's all they are actually making. And at the absolute worst, he's scamming from you. So as the band members started piecing together this puzzle, they realized that there were quite a few things about Lou's business practices that didn't add up. For one thing, the band was flying around on coach on regular airlines when they were touring, which seemed weird to them because... Lou allegedly owned this successful airline with Transcontinental, and it didn't make any sense why he wouldn't be flying his bands around on his own fleet of planes. And yeah, that would definitely be kind of a red flag if you are like, like, wait a minute, like our producer supposedly has 49 airplanes with his airline, but why are we riding in coach on Southwest? You know, that would definitely be a little bit weird. Exactly. In 1997, Brian Luttrell of the Backstreet Boys finally brought a lawsuit against Lou. He stated that there was a pattern of misappropriation and concealment by Lou of revenues generated by the band. Up to this point, the boys and their parents had all gone along with whatever Lou said because, as Jane Carter, who's Nick Carter's mom, said, quote, we didn't know anything about the music industry. We were parents. We were starstruck. The kids were just happy to have all these fans adore them. He, referring to Lou, would buy them watches. He would give them a lot of presents. I'd say, enough of the presents. Let's use some cash and some accounting, end quote. The following year in 1998, all of the Backstreet Boys decided to cut ties with Lou, and they entered a settlement where the exclusive management agreement was terminated, but they had to buy their way out of the agreement. In December of 2000, the boys had to make another settlement where they would actually pay Lou $29,500,000 to cut all ties with him. So basically, they had to buy the rights to their own work because Lou had screwed them over in their contracts from the beginning. $29.5 million? Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that you have to, that you're ordered to pay that just so you can continue under your name, Backstreet Boys, and continue making money for your own talent? That's just so crazy to me that Lou was able to scam them in that way and to trick them into these terrible contracts where they stood to gain nothing from all this work that they were doing. And how much money could they have even had to get together $29.5 million if he's 
stealing all this money from him, you know, like that is a lot of money anyway. But if you're getting paid very little, that's a whole lot of money. So once he was out of the picture, the boys took control of Delaware Backstreet Boys and Backstreet Boy Productions. After NSYNC realized that Lou was also stealing from them, they tried to get a better deal or ditch Lou the same way the Backstreet Boys had. Lou's attitude and demeanor took a turn when NSYNC confronted him, and he told them that he was entitled to 90% of the money they made because he was the one who made them. He essentially told them they could take 10% or nothing at all. That's actually an O-Town song. (laughs) (laughs) So from that point on, he was no longer nice to the boys. He became cold and selfish and refused to negotiate terms with them. JC from NSYNC had an uncle that was an attorney who looked over the boys' contract. He was absolutely shocked at how awful it was. He said it was just, quote, webs upon webs of robbery, end quote. Luckily, they managed to find a small loophole in the contract that stated that if they weren't signed to an American label within a certain amount of time, the contract was void. The boys had been signed to a German label. When the boys brought this up to Lou in October of 1999, Lou, of course, tried to sue them. At the trial, Lou showed up and told the judge that he was in sync. Of course, NSYNC was known worldwide, and the judge said to Lou, quote, You think you're NSYNC, and these five guys who my daughter has a poster of on her wall are not NSYNC? And obviously, the judge sided with the band and let them out of their contract with Lou. For both boy bands, this separation from Lou was really bittersweet. On one hand, they wouldn't be where they were and still are today without him. He literally gave them a life and gave them a career. But at the same time, he betrayed them in the worst way and stabbed all of them in the backs. After this major fallout with the two most popular pop groups of their time, Blue continued to con his way into creating other boy bands. None of these bands saw the same success that Backstreet Boys and NSYNC did, but that was also because this era of boy bands was really fading away by that time. So these are the O-Towns and the LFOs of the generation. And I know we've talked about O-Town. I can only think of like two songs that they made. And we talked about it on a recent Google This City. And then somebody tagged them on Instagram with the episode. And so was like, yeah, that was. It was very like nice. Weird. It was it's, very nice of them to do that. But I was it, like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's always just scary to us. I'm like, no, don't draw attention yeah, to please, anything please. that we did or said or anything. <laughs> so. so Lou continued to pay his band members fairly minimum wage, and these new groups even knew that Lou was shady, but they also knew how successful Backstreet Boys and NSYNC had become under Lou's management, and they wanted the same success. So even though they knew that Mm. he was kind of a shyster, they decided to sign these contracts with him anyways. In 1999, while he was paying his new band members pennies, Lou moved into an 11,000-square-foot home in Lake Butler, and he also bought a waterfront condo in Clearwater, a few penthouses in Vegas, a place in Hollywood, and an apartment in New York City. He also continued to grow the transcontinental brand and bought TCBY, Chippendales, NYPD Pizza, and more under the transcontinental name. Lou Perlman was a professional con man who knew the ins and outs of business and knew how to carefully scam the system so that he made a lot of money off the backs of others. But Lou couldn't keep up this act forever. And in 2002, things started to come crashing down for him. And we're going to get right back into the fall of Lou Pearlman after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. (music) 
My son is late to the Frozen phenomenon, so currently in my house we have both soundtracks going on around the clock. While sure the songs I enjoyed the first 3,000 times, I cannot take them anymore. And sometimes I need to listen to literally anything else, and I can with my wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds not only deliver me from one more second stuck with Elsa and Arendelle, but they are also incredibly comfortable and about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. Raycon's newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. They have six hours of playtime, seamlessly pair with your Bluetooth, but also have more bass and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I've been using my Raycon earbuds for several months now, and I love the crystal clear sound quality and the little storing case that also charges the earbuds for you. They are perfect when I'm traveling or when I'm at home listening to podcasts or music. Whether you're listening to podcasts or stuck in yet another Zoom meeting, give your ears a nice treat with earbuds that have amazing sound, plus are wireless and comfortable. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash momsandmurder. That's buyraycon.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash momsandmurder. Are your lashes looking a little less than exciting these days? Then check out Rapid Lash Eyelash Enhancing Serum. It's a safe, clinically proven, and award-winning lash enhancing serum that cosmetically boosts the look of your lashes in as little as four to six weeks. Rapid Lash is tried and true and has over 6 million units sold worldwide. Plus, makeup artists, celebrities, consumers, and beauty editors all trust it as well. Rapid Lash is super easy to apply, and you just need to apply it once at night on clean, dry skin to the base of your lash line. Makeup can still be applied after the serum dries in just a few minutes. The formula is ophthalmologist and dermatologist tested, safe for contact lens wearers, plus it's paraben and fragrance-free and not tested on animals. It can even be used with lash extensions. If you struggle with thinning lashes that are due to age, stress, hormonal shifts, medications, even damage from false lashes, lash extensions, or environmental factors, Rapid Lash is ideal for you. I've never had anything resembling full or long eyelashes, so I love that there's a product out there that I can actually use, and it works really well so far. I've seen a big improvement in my lashes after using it for only two months. So whether it's for a special occasion or you just want the look of youthful lashes every day, Rapid Lash is available at CVS, Ulta Beauty, Target, and Walgreens.com for $49.95. Or visit RapidLash.com and use the code RAPID30 to save 30% off site-wide. And learn about Rapid Lash's other products like Rapid Brow, Rapid Shield, Rapid Eye, Rapid Hair, and Rapid Renew. That's RapidLash.com and use the code RAPID30 to save 30%. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about all the ways that Lou Pearlman lied and stole money from the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC before the boy bands caught on and went through a court battle to cut ties with their creator. Lou went on to continue scamming and conning, and in September of 2002, he made a fateful mistake and purchased a company that was already under investigation for fraud. The company was called Options Talent Group, and what they did was approach people in public places like malls and stadiums and say they wanted to set the person up with a photographer to take good modeling headshots. The people would then agree to spend money on the headshots, but nothing would ever come of it afterwards. Did you ever have that, Melissa, have that happen to you in a mall or anywhere? I had the um, Barbizon people. You remember those? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I went through that whole thing. Did not get chosen. I had pictures taken very nicely by my uncle. And 
they were very professional. As in one time he took a picture of me straight on and it had pantyhose over the lens. So it made it look, (laughs) (laughs) it was like an Instagram filter for the nineties. Oh no. (laughs) So turns out my modeling career went absolutely nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I remember uh, being at malls when I was a young teenager, really young, probably only like 12 to 15, maybe, maybe 16, but younger, I feel like, like a preteen, early teen. And I remember being approached by like people at the mall and that was kind of their shtick where they were just like, oh, we, you know, it was like scouts for like modeling things or whatever. And I thought it was weird then. And I still do now. I was always very cautious. I think it's even weirder now, (laughs) but yeah, then it was kind (laughs) of like, oh gosh, somebody got it. My friend got approached at the mall and I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I I totally understand exactly what this business was that uh, he was running. And I can understand how you could easily scam people doing something like that. For sure. I mean, probably not now, but definitely in the 90s. Definitely. So at the time that Lou bought this company, the Economic Crimes Unit in Orlando, which didn't even know we had that, but it's a really cool name, was already investigating and had even toured the Options Talent Group's office. The investigators believe that the office was a complete setup because there were a lot of people there working, but no one really looked up when the group of investigators walked by them, which, of course, is super weird if you have a bunch of cops coming in and you're just like... I'm just really too busy to even acknowledge anything going on right. today. Right, like every single person in the office was just like facing down. Yeah. Staring at the desk. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so a few days after this visit to the office, the bureau chief was told that she no longer needed to investigate the company. Come to find out, Lou had given a large monetary contribution to the new Florida Attorney General, Charlie Crist, and in turn, Charlie allegedly shut down the investigation. Over the years, Lou had flip-flopped on his political stance and donated thousands of dollars to both political parties from 1997 to 2002. At the same time all of this was happening, a financial writer at the St. Petersburg Times was actively investigating Transcontinental Airlines after receiving numerous calls and letters from people who were inquiring about it. The writer, named Helen Huntley, believes something was definitely amiss about the company, and she posted an article about it, which in turn led to investors of the company contacting her. Investors started asking for their money back from Lou and from his company, and things really started falling apart from there. It was discovered that as early as 1989, Transcontinental Airlines was offering an investment opportunity for employees. It was known as an ESA account, which is E-I-S-A, and it stood for Employee Investment Savings Account. What was strange was that you didn't actually have to be an employee of Transcontinental to get an ESA account. These accounts were supposed to yield anywhere from 3 to 14% interest, and they were allegedly FDIC insured, but Lou had given the account holders fake insurance certificates and financial statements from a completely fake accounting firm to prove that Transcontinental was really doing well as a company. So instead of putting the money that people gave him into high-yielding accounts, Lou put all of it into regular U.S. bank accounts. When investors were unable to or had a hard time withdrawing their money from the ESA accounts, they started to realize that something was not right with this situation. During the same time, Lou was also having some problems with his attorney. When Lou was going through the Backstreet Boys settlement, he hired attorney Jay Cheney Mason to represent him. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he was one of the attorneys on Casey Anthony's defense team. So Cheney Mason helped Lou with the Backstreet Boys stuff, but once that settlement was over, Lou screwed Cheney Mason over by hiring a different law firm to collect the money. 
This caused Cheney Mason to file his own lawsuit against Lou, which he eventually won, and Lou was ordered to pay Mason $16.5 million. That is so crazy to me. Yeah. I Why? Why, <laughs> why does he do these things? I don't even understand I, that. But why do you think that you can scam or like con a lawyer? Like you're, if anyone is going to be able to figure out how to like nail you to the ground for that, it's going to be an attorney. Yeah. So why would you even, why would you even try? It just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah, I don't get it either. But Lou was very, very bold and didn't seem to have a problem trying to keep conning this attorney. He alleged that he sent the full $16.5 million by wire transfer from a bank in Germany. But the money never arrived because, of course, the bank didn't exist. Lou presented a bank statement as evidence in the trial, which Cheney Mason promptly took to the FBI for inspection. The FBI figured out that Lou did not actually have any money at all and that he'd been borrowing money from banks all over the country, lying to each one about his income to get approved for loans and lines of credit. In 2003, this pattern came to a peak when Lou leveraged his companies, his houses, his studio, his royalties on boy bands, and more to take out loans from numerous banks across America. He managed to get $156 million in cash and credit through at least 13 different deals. The FBI found out that multiple banks were suing Lou, and they obtained the records from those banks. It was determined that Lou was committing bank fraud, so the FBI got a search warrant for Lou's house and business. During the investigation, they discovered the truth about the transcontinental ESA program, so they added investment fraud to the list of crimes that Lou was committing. In February of 2007, the state forced Lou and some of his businesses to file for bankruptcy, and the FBI and IRS seized his files. Unfortunately, Lou knew the FBI was hot on his trail, and he cleared out his desk and the safes at his house, and he went on the run. The Florida Office of Financial Regulation found 1,374 investors that had opened ESA accounts over a 15-year period. In that time frame, Lou took in between $95 to $153 million in ESA deposits, but by the time the FBI got involved, there was less than just $15,000 in Transcontinental Airlines accounts. Whoa. That is Insane. I have so many comments about this whole process, but I will save them until the end. So with the money that Lou had collected from the ESA accounts, he kept $45 million for himself. He paid the sales and marketing agents around $7 million, and he gave $3.2 million to two of his associates. Many of the investors were friends and family members of Lou, which is really unusual for a scammer. One state employee who worked on this case, whose name was Jerry McHale, said that he generally does not see family and friends getting taken advantage of in these types of cases. But in this case, Lou took advantage of a lot of his own friends and family. Yeah. So after Lou fled, Helen, who was the financial writer from St. Petersburg, kept a blog about Lou's possible whereabouts. In mid-2007, a reader sent her an email claiming that he was on vacation in Bali and that he had spotted Lou there. On June 14th, 2007, FBI agents went to Bali. In a stroke of luck, the officers randomly saw Lou eating at the same restaurant that they were getting breakfast at. Lou was taken into custody without a fight and extradited back to Orlando. In March of 2008, Lou pled guilty to two counts of conspiracy involving bank and investor fraud, one count of money laundering, and one count of making false claims during a bankruptcy. He really tried to put off his sentencing as long as possible because he wanted to try and get one of his new bands, US5, you've heard of them, right, up and running. So that <laughs> did not go well, obviously. So he was allegedly developing this new band before he was arrested. 
He said if he could get this band up and running, they had the potential to earn the profits he would need to repay the victims of his fraud. Lou's idea was not acceptable to the court. Of course, why would they ever accept that? He's stealing people even to start these kind of things. So, of course, there's just going to be more fraud that's going on. So the judge had some harsh words for the banks that had loaned Lou all of his money. He said that they were negligent and questioned their competency for lending so much to an airline that didn't have any planes flying around. In May of 2008, Lou was sentenced to the maximum term of 25 years in prison. The judge gave him the option to cut a month off of his sentence for every $1 million he helped recover for the victims. If he paid the whole $300 million debt, he wouldn't have to serve his 300-month sentence. Obviously, Lou did not take the judge up on his offer. A prosecutor in the case named Roger Hanberg summed things up nicely with this statement. Quote, What Lou would do is he would use the money to plug whatever hole that he needed to plug. So if he had bank fraud money that he needed to use to pay off an investor, he would do that. If he had a problem where he had to pay a bank some money, he would use the investor money. All the money was commingled, and it was used however it would benefit him, end quote. In total, Lou committed around $250 million in bank fraud and $250 million in investor fraud. Only about $38 million was ever recovered, so many investors lost literally everything. Oh my gosh. So there were four sales agents that helped Lou sell the ESA program, and all four of them were sentenced to federal prison for their part in the scam. In total, the sales agents sold more than $35 million worth of savings to over 350 investors. The four men were all ordered to pay restitution and to pay the government, but the amounts they were on the hook for varied from $3 million to $29 million. While Lou was behind bars, he contacted his old friend, Alan, and tried to get him to help by saying that he had been framed and he really needed to get out of jail. He continued to try and work from jail, attempting to start a reality TV show and also starting a choir and holding auditions from jail. How do you attempt to start a reality show from jail? I would watch the heck out of that. I don't know. I would definitely watch that just because I would be curious about how one could pull that off from behind bars. So that would be a very... It's like 60 days in boy band edition. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. On August 19th, 2016, Lou died of cardiac arrest at the Federal Correctional Institution in Miami. He was 62 years old. The members of the bands that Lou helped create and launch into the unforgettable groups that we all know and fell in love with, really, they all felt ambivalent about his death. Chris Kirkpatrick said, quote, There was so much wrong with everything about him and what happened that you don't even know how to take death, end quote. And there's a ton of quotes from every member of both of these bands about uh, Lou Pearlman's death, and they all are pretty much the same. They are all pretty much grateful for what he did for them, but also they have a little animosity for what he did for them. So, yeah, this is such a crazy story that they I, I had no idea that in the beginning they had this kind of a hard time getting started. Yeah. And I, of course, we feel bad for the investors because those people he went to jail wouldn't, you know, work with them to get any of the money back. And those people lost like their life savings. They felt like he was you know, if you look at this card and he's got like 50 businesses on this transcontinental business card and you trust him, you might not think twice about putting money with him because you think, well, this guy's successful. He's going to, you know, turn this money into something. This is a great investment. I feel bad for all of those people. And then the boy bands, of course, it's just crazy that that's where it all started. It started 
if this guy wasn't a fraud and he wasn't, you know, stealing money and doing all this, they might not have ever started. I don't know. It's it's a weird uh, butterfly effect, I guess, in that way. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. I know. It really is fascinating. It's a fascinating story. I guess it's just crazy to think that somebody who really wasn't a music industry professional is who ended up creating these popular boy bands right. that everybody, you know, everybody knows those names. You know, it doesn't matter if you listen to pop music or not. Everybody knows who the Backstreet Boys are. And th- there's really something to be said about creating something that becomes worldwide, you know, becomes a worldwide sensation like that. Yeah. And it's really, in two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there's even more than that, though. If you look like if you look at the if you just Wikipedia Lou Pearlman, yeah. you can see all of the like stuff that he had his hand in. And there's a lot of stuff that most of us couldn't imagine not having that, you know, he was a part of, but at the end of the day, he really was a con artist. And I just have so many thoughts about that because, okay, so I don't understand how people like know how to do that. How do you come up with the idea to create a bogus airline company and then you just steal money like a lot over and over again? And next thing you know, you've stolen like, $500 $500 million. And like, I don't understand, like how, how do you get to this point? Like, I wouldn't even know how, I wouldn't even know how to start something like that to start a scam like that. And I guess for him, it just snowballed. Like it started with this yeah. one thing. It started with this one small lie with his company. You know, I'm going to lease out this helicopter that someone else technically owns. And then he realized that that was a thing he could do. And so he just did that on a larger scale where he just kind of borrowed money and, right. and 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 paid himself but made himself seem really wealthy and he actually wasn't he actually had no net worth he wasn't worth anything it was just he was borrowing all this money and it's just crazy to me that people can get away with that for that long and make that right. much money and not actually make that much money <laughs> Yeah, it's it's completely bananas. So that was a really interesting episode, though. I learned a lot in this episode. For sure. So are you ready to turn the page and go to last thing before we go? Yes. Okay. So I, I feel like I phrased that. I said it in an inflection that didn't sound like a question. But no, that's good. yeah, <laughs> so we're going to go to last thing before we go. And we're going to keep it in the theme of the 90s because that's what we're doing today. So we're going to do kind of a little game of it's kind of a this or that or a would you rather, I think. I think we're on the same page and that we both prepared the same type of material for last I did like this versus this. Okay. This versus me this. Me too. Like this or that. Me too. Okay. So it's perfect. So these are 90s edition. Choose one of these two things. Okay. So Melissa, you can go first. Okay. I'm going to start off easy. Super Nintendo versus Sega. Oh, boy. Super Nintendo for me. Right? Sega, you had to blow on the cartridges and it never worked. I only, all you could play was Sonic. No. Oh, my gosh. The only game on Sega that I actually remember loving was that game Echo. Echo the Dolphin. I've never. What? Oh, my no, gosh. I've never heard Oh, my that. gosh. If you are listening and you have ever played or heard of Echo the Dolphin, please, please, please email us and attention Mandy because I want to know please. who has played. And I don't want to open yeah. it. <laughs> Okay. All right. Melissa, do you want boys with frosted tips or wear or wearing beanies? Wait, beanies was 90s? Yeah. Beanies or frosted tips. Oh. Yes. This is totally 90s. Okay. I'm going to go. Oh, frosted tips. I did have a thing with people <laughs> with frosted tips. I actually did too. Like I totally judged a boy by how cool he was if he had frosted tips or not. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Okay, Mandy, Slater versus Zach. Definitely Zach. Slater was too much of a bad boy for me. Okay, but today I would say Slater over Zach. <laughs> I would start Zach versus Slater. Yes, Zach, but now Slater. Slater's doing quite well for himself. Thank you. TGIF versus Saturday morning cartoons. So like Rugrat and stuff like that. Definitely Saturday morning cartoons. What? Versus TGIF? I don't think I ever watched TGIF. Oh my God. What? Wait. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> so step by step means nothing to you. It literally means nothing to me. <laughs> day by day. Okay. No. Perfect strangers. I feel like we've talked about that before. Balky and Larry, perfect strangers, happy dance. Oh my gosh, Mandy. Family matters. <laughs> my, we would get pizza, like the $5 cheap pizza, Hungry Howie's pizza, which is the worst pizza. It shouldn't even call itself pizza. We would get that some Friday nights and watch like two hours, eight to 10 o'clock would be TGIF. And I felt so cool. I wasn't at the mall with my friends, but I was watching a show that was dedicated to people my yeah, age. <laughs> no, I don't. I never watched that. I don't know. I didn't watch that. Okay. So uh, we're going to go to a food item. So fruit by the foot or Scooby snacks, fruit snacks. Um, I think fruit by the foot, fruit by the foot. Yes. Fruit by the foot. Fruit by the foot for sure for me too. But Scooby Snacks, they had those ones that were like blue. The blue ones were my favorite, but they were weird because they were, I don't know. Scooby Snacks. I don't know that I ever had a Scooby Snack. Yeah, they're they're just fruit snacks, but like the the blue ones, I don't know. They're like blue and they're solid color. I don't know. You know how some gummies are just kind of like opaque and like not totally solid? Yeah. But the blue ones were solid all the way through and those are my favorites and you could only get them in scooby snacks and i love those but i love fruit by the foot too and gushers also yeah that's what i was gonna say gushers versus dunk dunkaroos what were those called dunkaroos right yeah so i don't know what donkey i don't know what dunkaroos are i think it was trying to make us cultured and learn about other like animals from other countries and it was like a kangaroo (laughs) and you dipped it in frosting it was like a kangaroo animal cracker that you dipped in frosting yeah yeah, it wasn't that exciting. Gushers I loved. I felt like if my friend had Gushers at their house, they probably were rich well, because yeah. it did not make sense to me. Yeah, well, no. My mom never bought me that kind of stuff. I didn't have any junk food. I had no Gushers. I had no fruit by the foot. We didn't have soda. We didn't have chips. And now, as much as I hated that when I was a kid, I do that to my kids. We've talked about this before on the show yeah. where I've said, like, my poor kids, like, don't have snacks and, like, I don't buy them chips and stuff. But it's true. I do the opposite because I didn't have it as a kid. So I feel like I'm not going to let you suffer the way I suffer. Right. <laughs> I should totally what take, you'll turn into. Yeah, I should take a page out of your playbook because I have, like, <laughs> I've just, like, mimicked and copied everything my mom did, which was no junk food, no soda, no snacks, no anything. And my poor kids, they probably they probably are very upset and missing out. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're doing fine. Okay, do you have any more, Melissa? All right, last one I have is Light Bright versus Moon Shoes. They don't really go together, but do you remember Moon Shoes? I don't remember Moon Shoes, but I do remember Light Bright. Light Bright was so cool. I got my daughter a Light Bright. Not as exciting. It's now. not. <laughs> it's not as exciting now. But uh, you know, I haven't been to the Orlando Science Center in a while. But last time I went, they had like a giant Light Bright oh, wall, yeah. and mm. that was really cool and fun to play with with the kids. But of course, anything that you take that's like meant to be small and you blow it up and you put it on a whole wall, well, of course it's going to be cool. So I remember it being cool at the Science Center. But yeah, I don't. I probably. 
It would probably be one of those toys that I'd be really annoyed with right now because there's a million little pieces. Pieces. That, yeah. Mm. So I don't want to. I vacuumed right. so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not. But worth I don't. It. But I don't even know what moon shoes are. So I definitely. They were basically like you put your feet in. They're like I didn't have them again. I had none of this stuff. But you put your feet in and you could kind of bounce. They were like weirder Air Jordans. Remember how Air Jordans you yeah, could pump them up? Yeah. <laughs> it was like the same premise, but neither of them worked. It just looked like you get a really bad headache. All right, so that was fun. Melissa, thank you for showing up and playing that game of Would You Rather. <laughs> I would really like to ask you what, what choice I had in this matter <laughs> at all. I had none. It's like a hostage situation. Yeah, yeah. So this was a really fun episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. This episode was researched for us by Haley Gray, and she always does such a great job researching for us, and we just love her so yes. much, and this was no different. Um, but this was so so fun, and I love being able to have a an episode where nobody is killed, and we can kind of yes. be a little more lighthearted. And this one was especially fun because it was about the '90s, and I think everybody loves the '90s for the most part. I feel like a lot of our listeners are in the demographic that like has fond memories of the '90s, and so it's. But fun. there are some that did not give their kid gushers and yeah. fruit by the foot, and now they're <laughs> learning how they ruin their kids' lives. So it goes either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so maybe you learn today that your that your kids have like this built up resentment for you because you didn't do that. But yeah, so please comment on this episode artwork or whatever it is that we post this week, and tell us your favorite memories of the '90s and what you remember the most about that time and. Who did you like more? The Backstreet Boys are in sync. We definitely want to hear from you guys and hear what you think about this episode. Yes. Save me, Melissa. I'm done talking. <laughs> no, I enjoyed your Melissa ing here at the end. You're <laughs> spiraling. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Come back next week. Mandy, I'm going to give that back to you. You do it. All right. Same time, same place, new story. We'll see you guys next week. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.